Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special Halloween episode of Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. My guest today uh, created a character that I imagine every person hearing this broadcast will recognize. He created Chucky. Uh, Don Mancini has written, directed, and produced films throughout the entire Child's Play franchise, and he's known as one of the, the great horror writers of our time. Don, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that um too, too kind and over-the-top introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chucky is pervasive in our society. I, he's, he's, he's one of the most famous characters in, in, in any film franchise, horror or not, so everybody knows Chucky. Well, horror always intrigues me because the story elements are very different than they are in dramas and comedies. And it seems to focus kind of largely on the antagonist as opposed to the protagonist. Um, so what, what drew you to horror? Uh, what a complicated question and, you know, one that probably only my therapist has the real <laughs> answer to. <laughs> I, you know, as a kid, I was, um, one of my earliest enthusiasms was the TV soap opera Dark Shadows in mm-hmm. the 60s. And I remember, I learned the word shadow from watching that show. I remember asking my mother, what's a shadow? So I, I must have been three or four. I wow, yeah. This was in the mid to late 60s. And I was just entranced by that show and, uh, you know, Barnabas and Clinton and Angelique. I don't know how familiar you are with it. But, um, uh, you know, it's a, it, it all of the gothic trappings that came with it, I think, and I think that that sort of, I imprinted on that heavily enough so that not only did I start developing an interest in horror, but I think a very specific strain of horror, which is, you know, kind of leaning toward gothic, but also just kind of, um, how do I phrase this, As for a lot of um uh, people who work in horror of my generation, a lot of people were influenced by movies like The Hills Have Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which are, you know, great and influential movies in the genre, but they were not really my thing. I was sure, really, sure. I was really attracted, to, aesthetically, I was attracted to the the interesting combination of beauty and horror which again just aesthetically that's just something that I'm really into uh working as a filmmaker in that genre because you can just I, I just find the the combination of of violence whether it's physical violence or even emotional violence but but combined with some form of beautiful presentation whether it's as complex as a you know a beautiful location or room or whatever, but also like a beautiful face. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, to me, in a way, I can I can sort of reduce my interest in the horror genre to like the image of like a beautiful face with a, a splash of blood on it. <laughs> you know, it's just there's just something very striking about those two different colors 
you know, sure. beauty and horror that I find interesting. Intertwining them. And, and some horror stories, it seems, are more psychological in nature than others, um, you know, like the, the Twilight Zone and, and things like that, um, uh, rather than, you know, like you were saying, the Chainsaw Massacre, the in-your-face kind of terror. So if you're, if you're playing to your audience's fears and trying to evoke an emotional reaction, how do you do that with your story? Well, you know, a few things, and I think the most important thing, well, the two most important things are that first that you have to have an interesting metaphor. I mean, you have to, it has to be about something. The best horror movies are metaphorical expressions of something disturbing that's going on in the world, in the zeitgeist. And as we were talking before you started the recording, it's like, for example, (laughs) right now, the times we're living in, it's not an accident that we're seeing such a big boom in horror movies and horror television, because we are living in extremely disturbing times. Sure. And and so that's going to give a lot of fodder to, to horror, people working in the horror genre, to come up with interesting metaphorical expressions of what we're all feeling. And I think a a lot of times those expressions can have an enduring quality, maybe sometimes more so than something that's coming at the subject from a more direct angle, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I, you know, I think we're going to, you know, clearly we're going to see in the next generation or so, we're going to see, uh, you know, a, a, bi- a biography movie about Donald Trump, and it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see who's going to do that and who's going to play him and who's going to play Melania and all the various figures in that. Sure. Call it. And and how dark it's going to be portrayed. How dark it's, it's going to be. You know, it's so divisive. Yeah. But, you know, those won't be horror movies per se. But, you know, I think we're also already seeing, you know, one of the biggest horror movies the genre has ever seen came out last year, Get Out. And part of what was so brilliant about that movie is that expression, an expression of the growing racial divide in our country right. that we're all feeling and that we're all so frightened about. Um, so, so the metaphor is one, and the, the other important thing is you've got to create characters that are interesting enough that mm-hmm. we care about their fates. Um, and then the third thing I think is just a certain amount of creativity. You know, I mean, whether it's a creativity in terms of coming up with an interesting metaphor, but also something as simple as not really simple, but it, it, it's something as obvious as coming up with interesting ways of endangering people and killing people even. It's just it's kind of a weird occupational hazard when you work a lot in the genre and as I have over you know many years and many films, you're constantly thinking about creative ways of of doing people in. Sure. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. and it's weird. And it's weird. And the older I get, the weirder it is, honestly. Because, like, when you're in your 20s, at least for me, I think a lot of people are probably like this, in your 20s, you can be glib about it. And and there is something almost 
amusing about it. But when you're in your 50s, it's just different. You know, you're just, for obvious reasons, I mean, you're just getting closer to the inevitable end yourself. You see it happening around you. You start having to deal with prosaic real-life horrors like paying taxes and paying your bills and your health and, you know, all of these things that feel remote when you're younger. Mm -hmm. So... You know, when I was younger and I'd be writing uh, some big set piece with Chucky killing someone, I'm, you know, sort of giggling gleefully at the effect that I, you know, I'm hoping it's going to have on the audience. But it feels different now. I mean, sometimes I'm kind of going, ooh, oh, I don't know. I'm just like, it's just, it, it disturbs me more now. Sure, we, sure. We were shooting Cult of Chucky, the last movie, right after the election. Um and I really felt like as we were shooting the movie, the sort of general anxiety that everyone was feeling in the country and in the world, even because I was in Canada shooting that movie. But you, I, I thought, well, if we can if we can get that anxiety into the movie, the thing that yeah. we're all feeling, then the movie is going to work and, and be a hit. And it was. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I guess thanks, Donald Trump, for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, another another kind of societal situation that you tapped into, I read this, that the combination of the Cabbage Patch Kids craze and all of the marketing to children is kind of what you drew from when you created Chucky. So tell me about the creation of Chucky. Well, this was in the mid-'80s, and I was a, a film student at UCLA, and I was uh, – I had taken uh, one screenwriting class and written a script and, you know, had a facility for it and so wanted to do something else. And my my dad, as, as you probably know from Kristen, you know, our dad had worked in advertising and marketing. So we were exposed to that a lot as kids. And it's right. a fascinating world. And, and one of its fascinations – is that it's extremely cynical. I mean, the, the, I mean, I think people now from like Mad Men, you know, sort of common knowledge, I guess. But as a child, I was even struck by this industry that is designed to kind of manipulate people into buying things that they really don't need. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what advertising and marketing is all about. Absolutely. And and they do it to children. As well, that's a specific market, and in the advertising world, I remember learning the term when I was I accompanied my dad to a business trip in New York. He sometimes would take me and would you know go to whatever advertising agency he was working with. And at some point, I learned the term consumer trainee, which is how they they call children. And I thought, <laughs> oh my god. That's horrible. That is horrible. People are monsters. You know, <laughs> so I was that that was all inside my head and I was just sort of thinking about wanting to write a dark satire about how marketing and advertising affected kids. And at this time cabbage patch dolls were very popular. People were lining up hard to imagine now. <laughs> 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 no, in this day and age of like you know, 
games that kids play on their phones and everything. It's just the, the notion of kids it's such a different world. Two footballs right. is very different now. Yeah. But people were lining up for these things, and even people, you know, getting into fights because when they would sell out and stuff like that. So as a lifelong horror fan, I was certainly aware of the killer doll trope, which has, you know, has been used many times in the horror genre. Some of my favorites were the Trilogy of Terror TV movie with Karen Black and uh, Taki Hina, mm-hmm. uh, Twi- the Twilight Zone episode, so stuff like that. You know, I, I had recognized that that was a very powerful figure because we have such a primal response to dolls because they are effigies. They're, you know, they're distortions of the human form. They they fall into what we now call the uncanny valley. They they look like us, but off. Off just enough to create a kind of primal recoil. So Sure, I, that makes sense. So, so I, I, I knew that, like, I, that even though the, the killer doll trope had been done, it had never been done on, on such a scale where, where you treated the doll as a full-fledged character. Mm-hmm. and gave him a whole character arc and pages of dialogue and stuff like that. And I also recognized at that time that animatronic effects had progressed to the point where they could accommodate any emotion that a writer could write. I mean, this was around the time Gremlins had come out, and that sort of marked a, a big step forward. A turning point, sure, yeah. yeah. So all of that stuff was sort of percolating in my head, and... I wrote a, a spec script when I was uh, a film student, and that is what ended up becoming the first child's play. So how did you encounter the producers, and how was the story that you wrote in film school discovered? How, how did you uh, get your start? I was, as I said, I was, I was going to UCLA, but I was, I was not living on campus. I was living in a house in Hollywood with three other film types. They were all a bit older than me. They and they also <laughs> sort of significantly at the time, they were all USC people. <laughs> they were all Trojans and I was a soul Bruin in the house. <laughs> um, um, but one of them was working as an assistant to a producer at um, a studio. And anyway, so she showed the script to him and he liked it. And he passed it on to his agent, and that's how I got my first agent. Was that's wonderful. With the script, and you know, having you know that crucial connection, and then the script eventually found its way into the hands of uh, the producer David Kirshner, and um, yeah, so he he optioned it and set it up at MGM, and we made the movie. It Excellent. Easy, but that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's, you know, there, there's always that one fortuitous moment in life that uh, we look back and think, what if that hadn't happened, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so totally. how did you get into directing and producing uh, as the Child's Play franchise expanded? Well, I knew, you know, I always knew that I wanted to direct. But when I was in college, at UCLA, unlike USC, actually, this was a big difference between the two, 
at UCLA, you had to pay for your films. If you were making a film, you had to pay for it, and films are expensive. So that's one of the main reasons I gravitated towards screenwriting, because it, you know, it didn't cost anything other than paper. Um, but it's something I always wanted to do, and I directed a couple of small projects at school. But uh, it took a few films to, you know, twist their arm and get them to entrust me with millions of dollars right. <laughs> to make their movie because they just don't, they don't turn the keys over to just anyone. So I had sure. to prove myself over the course of a few films. So I was very lucky that that it turned that the first film was a hit. And then they hired me to write the sequel, and that sequel was made, and it, that was a hit. And so it, it created a little bit of momentum that was really crucial for me at the beginning of my career. And actually gave me a very distorted impression for a few years of what working in Hollywood was. Because I was really lucky, and I just sort of thought, oh, God, this isn't hard. What are people, right? people complaining about? <laughs> of course, I, you know, I was soon to, you know, be schooled by life <laughs> and, right. and Hollywood and that because it's not always that way. It's a roller coaster and you have your ups and downs and fallow periods and whatnot. But I was very lucky that this character caught on with the public and was embraced. And, you know, that's something I always dreamed of. So I, I felt very lucky. So by the time we got to Bride of Chucky, I was also a producer on the film, and I also uh, was the second unit director on the film. And what that is, is just like there, you know, a lot of times on films, particularly if you have certain special effects that are complicated, there'll be a second unit that will pick up certain shots that may not involve the main cast, the main actors. Mm -hmm. So I, I directed you know, a few puppet-related things in Bride of Chucky, including the ending of the movie where uh, when uh, the the baby is born to the Bride of Chucky, I directed mm -hmm. that. And anyway, so that movie happily worked out well and, and was a success at the box office. So then it was, you know, finally they just like, oh, I guess we can't say no to him anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he is Chucky's dad after all. Well, it is just that I just was hanging around, you know, writing these movies, and they were more, you know, at that point, we had, out of the four movies, three of them were hits, so they finally said, okay, well, let's do what you can do, and I directed my first movie, Seed of Chucky, and it was a big bomb. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but they gave you another shot. They did. They did. It took a few years, but um, I, I, I steered the ship in the better direction, and Happily, the last two have been hit. So. Most definitely. And you've also done some TV work, I understand. Tales for the Crypt and writing for Hannibal and judging Halloween Wars and, and shows like that. How do you like television? I love television. I, I mean, Tales from the Crypt, that was kind of a one-off. God, it's so long ago now. It's hard to believe that was back in 1990. And I, and I just did one episode of that. But it was really fun. I mean, part of what's fun about television, it's so fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what's fun slash terrifying about television is it's so fast. I mean, so often with movies, the development process is very long. And really, you know, from inception to screen, it's years. It's just years of your life. But with television, it's this constant churning machine that you have to keep feeding. So the speed of that, while scary, because it's just the amount of work is is intimidating, 
it's exciting that you just like get product out there much more quickly. But after Tales from the Crypt, I hadn't worked in television for a long time, really just until the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was I was a big fan of the TV show Hannibal. I had been a huge fan of that franchise in general, all of the movies, all of the books. I happened to be friendly with the with Gina De Laurentiis and Martha De Laurentiis, who I had written a couple of scripts for them but had never gotten made, uh, and worked with Rafaela De Laurentiis on a couple of films. So I knew them, and they they did all the Hannibal movies. So they knew of my enthusiasm for it. So I like I would even they would send like I would get the books before they were published. Oh, they would great. send me the manuscript. Yeah, it was like completely thrilling. <laughs> But then, so, so then Hannibal ended up on the air as a TV show, and I'm watching it. And at first, like most people, I was a little skeptical. It's like, how can, how can they do this for television? How can they have anyone other than Anthony Hopkins playing a Hannibal Lecter? And I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but, you know, it was just an entrancing reinvention of the whole thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Mads Mikkelsen was amazing, and I think, you know, as, I, I won't say he eclipsed, Anthony Hopkins, but he, his interpretation was so different and so so successful that he's certainly right up there. When you think of Hannibal Lecter, I think I was also personally interested in it because it was so incredibly gay, the, which was not something that was in the original material. The, right. The, the showrunner, the guy who created the TV show, Brian Fuller, is gay, and he sort of turned it into this really fascinating gay metaphor for any not, for for anyone who is sensitive to it. Certainly I think all gay guys would see it. Maybe not all straight audiences. That's a, a, an interesting question actually. Definitely. I, that is interesting. Well I don't know, you know, the the relationship between Hannibal Lecter and the FBI profiler profiler Will Graham, which in in the Thomas Harris books and in the movie, you know, Manhunter and Red Dragon, you know, it's just a, a kind of more traditionally antagonistic relationship, mm-hmm. whereas what Brian did with it, in addition to just making it a backstory, which was fascinating in and of itself, because it was basically sold as what was Hannibal Lecter like before he was caught? What was he like when he was, in fact, a practicing psychiatrist fucking with people right. <laughs> and, and eating them? Um, and serving and serving them up in you know fancy dinner parties in Baltimore, but the the show really became a dance between these two characters, and, and Hannibal is this very seductive presence, and he's trying to seduce Will to sort of let go and give in to the darkness that's inside him, because Will Graham, the reason he's such a great FBI profiler, is that he 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 is able to think like the killers and it's really and it's really a a terrible thing for him psychologically and Hannibal encourages that but it's done in such a way that's very gay (laughs) (laughs) just like lots of fond caressing of cheeks and brushing of hair and stuff so that was you know something was like oh wow this show is really interesting so I happened to know someone who was working on the show, on the crew, where they were shooting up in Toronto, and I was in the habit of getting on the phone with him sometimes and discussing, you know, as each week the, 
episodes would air, and I would say, oh, my God, that was great, and are you guys going to, you know, use Mason Berger in season two, and blah, blah, blah. And finally he said, you know, Dom, you really should be writing on this show. And I said, oh, how would that ever happen? And he said, well, you should just you should just call Brian. And I had never met Brian at that point, um, but we did follow each other on Twitter. But yeah. at my friend's suggestion, I, I just sent him an email, which was basically a fan letter, and told him how much I liked the show and said that, you know, my I have a an encyclopedic knowledge of the Hannibal Lecter mythology, which in most walks of my life, is a little embarrassing because it's so geeky, but maybe it would be of use to you. Of use, definitely. <laughs> and, and so we ended up meeting, and he said, yeah, let's do it. So he hired me to work on season three of the show, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. Oh, and awesome. and from there, I, that's, I started working more on television. I had um, coincidentally already known one of the writers who was also on the show, this guy named Nick Antosca, we had already been friendly, and so it was just a coincidence that we were both on the show. And we ended up doing uh, working together. We wrote a pilot that didn't get picked up for Fox based on uh, this Brian De Palma movie from the 70s called The Fury, which was always a huge favorite of mine. It was literally like when I was a teenager. It was my official favorite movie. <laughs> so, we, so we wrote a pilot of that, and then Nick um, – created the TV show Channel Zero for the Sci-Fi Channel, and that and that got a green light. And so he hired me to work on that as a writer-producer, and I did two seasons of that. And um, anyway, so that's how I sort of got into television. You know, television has just exploded so much, and in fact, now there's so much horror TV. It's a, it's a real booming mini-industry, which is great for me for obvious reasons, and now sure. we're developing developing a Chucky TV series. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. So I was just going to ask, what do you have uh, have ahead for the future? So, uh, what is the um, what is the story with the Child's Play TV series? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you a thing. Well, other than it's set up. I mean, the end of the last movie, Cult of Chucky. I I had I was already thinking that I wanted to do it. I mean, one of the wanted to take it into TV just because mm-hmm. I was having such a good time working in TV. But also with the with the franchise, one of the things I've tried to do over the years, I just I try to reinvent it with every every time we come out because I don't like to make the same movie twice. And so we've you know we've become known for the elasticity of of our tone and of the genre. You know, we've gone from horror to satiric comedy and back again. And Trekkie's proven himself to be a very uh, versatile character. <laughs> he really is. And, and I like all those different modes. I, I like being able to, to plug him into different kinds of movies. And for the most part, the, you know, the audience has stayed with us. And I think it's really, it's really helped the longevity of the character by doing it that way. I think arguably Chucky, I would say, is bigger in pop culture than he's ever been now. 30 years on, he was, you know, just cameoed in Steven Spielberg's movie Ready Player One. Um, you know, he's the mascot for the Oakland Raiders. So, you know, he's, he's really... I did not know that. ...bigger than he's ever been. So um, <laughs> I just thought, like, well, one thing we've not done is, is done it in the TV format, which 
is is really interesting to me because that will just the serial format where you've got so much storytelling real estate we're going to have you know about 10 hours of story to do so you can really get into characters and relationships in a way that you can't service in a 90 minute film right so that's going to be very interesting and a new way of of looking at this character and seeing what he gets into and at the same time we're also going to be doing at, at least two more movies oh great so you're a you're, you're a busy man don mancini yeah it's been it's been really busy in the last couple of years which you know i feel very grateful for especially at my age <laughs> it's definitely very, it's a very ageist industry and so i'm you know, I've been making a living doing this for over 30 years now, and I feel very, very grateful for that. Well, and you still find fresh ways to approach it. So that's, you know, yeah. as long as you're still coming up with something fresh, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it because it doesn't get tired. Oh, no, not at all. I, I thoroughly I thoroughly enjoy it. And, I'm, you know, I'm working on, on other pro- non-Chucky projects as well. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still enjoying it. I feel very fortunate in that regard, too. Well, that's great, and I know that audiences are also still enjoying it, which is uh, which is even better. Well, Don Mancini, thank you so much for being on the show. I uh, I'm excited to have you here and to to talk about a, a genre I've never covered on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. So I so appreciate your time. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Mm-hmm.